for hosting international events like the 1962 World's Fair, the 1993 APEC meeting, and even the WTO ministerial in 1999, which did not go as well as the other two. Mostly forgotten, though, now is a conference that took place in 1958 with 21 nations and a speech by President Eisenhower that laid the groundwork for a lot of what followed. Our resident historian, Felix Bell, is here with the details of what happened 65 years ago this week. You know, it's the day after the election. It's the night of the presidential debate. And trust me, this is a completely topical election story. Yes. Um, so in 1958, Seattle hosted the Colombo Plan Conference from mid-October to mid-November. Something like 200 delegates were here for most of a month in meetings at what's now the Fairmont Olympic Hotel. Now, the Colombo name is from the city in what's now Sri Lanka, where the first meeting of this group was held in 1950. And what the Colombo plan was, essentially, was an effort by the West, initially Great Britain, but the U.S. was involved, to use economic development to help keep countries in South Asia and Southeast Asia from becoming socialist or communist, right? right. Big deal back then. You know, lots of participating nations, Pakistan, India, Australia, Thailand, the Philippines, 21 altogether. Now, 1958 was a heady year. Locally, planning was well underway for the Seattle World's Fair, which at that point was supposed to begin in May 1961, right? That would change. It was also the IGY. That was a song we heard at the top there, that Donald Fagan song, the International Geophysical Year, one of these sort of uh, post-World War II, pre-hardcore Cold War efforts for the world to all cooperate scientifically. A b- uh-huh. Big deal. All sorts of advances happening in, in 1958. And the whole idea of Seattle hosting an international conference came from a State Department official suggesting it to the Seattle Chamber of Commerce in February of 58. Kind of offhand remark, like, hey, you know, we're going we're gonna to be, you guys want to take a, a crack at that? And the World's Fair organizers saw that was a perfect, it fit right into their plans to sell booth space, do all this stuff to raise Seattle's profile. Seattle competed against San Francisco for about a month, and we, we were awarded it in something like April of 1958. It was a huge deal, front page news for weeks. Now, politically in those days, Washington was, was a purple state or a split ticket state, right? Six of seven House seats in Washington stayed Republican in that 1958 midterm election 65 years ago. Uh, both of our U.S. senators, Scoop Jackson and Ward Magson, were Democrats. Governor Rosalini was a Democrat. But in 52 and 56, Republican President Eisenhower easily carried Washington. Very, you know, very different times than we have now. Yeah. So on November 10th, 58, when Eisenhower spoke in Seattle, those midterms had just happened. Nationally, the Republicans had lost ground in both the House and the Senate, which were solidly Democratic. Now, I talked to Chester Patch. He's associate professor of history at Ohio University and author of multiple books about President Eisenhower. He said that one factor pretty much drove all of President Eisenhower's activities. The Cold War was absolutely central to almost everything that was going on or so much that was going on in public policy in the 1950s. It's hard to recapture how much concern there was about Soviet or Chinese threats, and not just external, but internal too, whether they were spies or subversives or propaganda or where it may be. I mean, it's more than 30 years since the Cold War ended, and a lot of people have no firsthand experience of it. But for Eisenhower, the Cold War was absolutely at the center of his agenda. You know, so to be clear, the Colombo Plan Conference held here didn't, wasn't some earth-shattering event that resulted in major policy announcements. It happened every year, and Seattle was the 10th one ever, but it was the first one held in the U.S. Now, what I think is really cool about it, so here in Washington, there was intense local press coverage every day, often on the front page of the Times of the P.I. It wasn't so much about the policies. I mean, there were announcements about different projects that were going to happen in these various countries. But every day, there was something about how uh, some group of Seattleites and an international delegate group mingled and shared customs and culture. Delegates went to the art museum, to a Husky game against Oregon. They fanned out and had in-home meals with local families. They went to plays. They went to the symphony. 
It was like a dry run at the kind of international exchange that would happen on a grander scale during the World's Fair just a few years later. It was the first time Seattle had hosted anything like it, right? It's just these, really, um, these times when the city is really ascending, trying to fulfill this vision of becoming a world city. And that ethos would hold sway pretty much until 1998 when the Seattle City Council, there's an election tie-in right there, they pulled the plug on the city's bid for the 2012 Summer Olympics. A full year before the WTO went totally sideways, Seattle stopped being this kind of international city, stopped going after these big things. So we had this sort of 30-year run between the Colombo Plan Conference and that city council pulling the plug on those Olympics, which ultimately went to London, right? So elections have consequences. So as new city council members, let's think big, right, going forward. So Eisenhower gave a speech at the Olympic Hotel on Monday, November 10th at 10.30 in the morning. All the local TV stations carried it live. NBC Radio carried it nationally. Um, but uh, it doesn't read as some memorable piece of oratory now, but Chester Patch says it reveals how the U.S. was trying to preemptively win the hearts and minds of some subset of those 21 Colombo planned nations who the U.S. feared might embrace either the Soviet Union or China. He was thinking about economic aid and economic development that he said would give people higher standard of living, some confidence in the future, and sort of narrow the opportunities for radicals, extremists, and communists to, to sort of gain traction and and convince people that, you know, kind of, if you will, Western ideas of development didn't work. It was time to follow a socialist or communist path. And if that soft power didn't work, there was always the Bay of Pigs and all these other things we would try in Southeast Asia, which is a whole other story, of course. Now, one more thing about Eisenhower. His brother Edgar lived in Lakewood near Tacoma and was an attorney and very good amateur golfer. Chester Patch says Edgar was more conservative and often criticized his brother to anyone who would listen. But before coming to Seattle to give that speech, um, Eisenhower spent Saturday night and all day Sunday with his brother. It didn't apparently keep them from, from uh, you know, being being brothers and having that brotherly relationship. I think he was supposed to play golf with Edgar on this trip, but the weather intervened and it, it never happened. Now, the very last thing Eisenhower did before he left Boeing Field and flew back to D.C. was to press the button to start the countdown clock for the Seattle World's Fair, this big sort of chronometer thing. Yeah. He did do that, right? But just a few months later, fair organizers decided they needed more time to line up exhibitors and get all the ducks in a row, do all the construction and everything. So opening day was moved from May 10th, 61, to April 21st, 1962. I like to think of that as the sort of Seattle World's Fair Eisenhower edition of spring forward or fall back. Depending whatever your perspective is, we did the big shift back in 19, early 59 to change that clock. Did you have to come back and press the button again? <laughs> you know, I, I wonder if they do that. Or they, or they, even, and they kind of kept it quiet. It's hard to find any evidence of when they actually moved that date, but they Seems did Seems to do me, it. once the president presses a button, it's pressed. <laughs> and I'd love to find wherever that, chron- that big chronometer ended up. It was a big sort of look like a, a showpiece for a TV studio or something. Somebody must have it in their basement somewhere. Felix Spinell, all his features at MyNorthwest.com. Thank you, Felix. Thanks, Dave. 37 Seattle's morning news calls for the Burien mayor and city manager to resign erupted at the last city council meeting on Monday. And Car News Radio's Sam Campbell is here in the studio to explain what's behind this. And this this all tracks back to the homelessness crisis in Burien? Uh, yes, more specifically, Dave, it's related to a new controversy over mismanaging the coordination of some potential funding from the county. So if you remember, King County offered the uh, city of Burien a million dollars, as well as 35 pallet shelters for a sanctioned encampment. They sent that offer several months ago. Um, but first, the county wants an answer from the city on where that sanctioned encampment could go. 
in Burien. City leadership has been debating that matter for several months, but that's kind of key to understanding this new controversy. Well, according to internal emails I've been given, the King County Deputy Executive emailed Burien City Manager Adolfo Bailon on November 27th, or I'm sorry, on October 27th, telling him the city now has 30 days, so a November 27th deadline to find a place for that sanctioned encampment, or they could risk losing that funding. The emails show that Bailon emailed the city council about it a week later, telling them he didn't see the deadline email until then because it was buried under a lot of other emails. But the emails I've been given apparently show that Bailon's claim is not true. It shows Bailon responded to the county on the same day. Now, this was brought up during the last city council meeting on Monday. Here's council member Sidney Moore asking Bailon about it. I would like to know why you told council that you didn't read an email and lost an email that you sent a direct response to referencing specifically the content within not just the email, but the attachment inside the email, that letter about a million dollar deadline. I would like to know why. Now, Publicola has reported that uh, the mayor, Sophia Aragon, was also CC'd on one of those emails and and presumably knew about it uh, because of that. This controversy leads to calls to resign from public commenters at that meeting. Here's one of them. Both of you lack basic executive functions like checking and responding to emails. So things get heated. And one public commenter calls for Bailon to go back to California. And that inflames tensions there even more. Here's uh, who I believe is Deputy Mayor Kevin Schilling. Our Hispanic city manager to go back to California. I think I think the speaker should apologize immediately. So ultimately, the chamber is cleared because of this. And the mayor, Sophia Aragon, dismisses this email controversy as drama. This whole thing about lost emails, that's great for drama. But, you know, that's not really going to be. That's not really going to inform us about the decision we need to make. Bailon says it was not his intention to mislead the council. And to be clear, we don't know if he brought up the deadline verbally to some council members before sending that email. But at least one council member, City Moore, seemed to be surprised by it. So, Is there some reason that the city manager would want to ignore that email? Is there a, a, a hidden agenda here we should know about? We're trying to delay this whole project or what do you think? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> if there's a hidden agenda, I haven't I haven't seen any of that, Dave. But what I do know is while this is taking place, time is ticking down for yeah. the city to find a spot for this sanctioned encampment. Uh, and the city now has about less than three weeks left to decide where to place that sanctioned encampment, or the county says that funding would have to be redirected because there are ARPA mm-hmm. funds. And without an encampment, that means there would be no other place for people to stay, so they would go back to camping out on the street? Not necessarily, because if you remember, I was down in Burien last week mm-hmm. where a nonprofit led by Sidney Moore, the same sitting city council person, um, is setting up a tent village behind a church. Ah. And interestingly, the mention of this tent village behind Oasis Home Church was brought up in one of the emails from Bailon. He he says that he couldn't see, he didn't see that email for a week because it was buried under all these other emails in regards to the tent village behind that church. Well, so thank you, Sam. Thanks, Dave. Are we witnessing a complete overhaul of the Seattle City Council? Let's go to our election specialist, Kyra News Radio's Matt Markovich. Matt, what are we looking at here? 
morning, Dave. Yeah, if the election were to end last night, we would have a complete overhaul of the Seattle City Council and have very and have a pro business leaning. Can you believe that after all these years? I've been talking about a very progressive city council. But again, the election did not end last night. There are lots of votes to be counted. So um, just to to reset things, I'm going to break things down this way so people can understand who the candidates, where they're leaning. I hate to give a big uh, overarching uh, uh, stereotype, but I'm going to do that. We had seven seats open with a possible eighth one, which I'll explain later. Um, seven open seats, three incumbents running. All three incumbents are losing. Now, to simply break things down, I'm going to say you know one's business-friendly, the other one is progressive-leaning in terms of the candidates. So we're going to look at District 1. Business-friendly Rob Saka has a 19 percentage point lead lead over the former Amazon exec Marin Costa. That's almost an insurmountable lead because when you look at the percentages, we basically, the uh, percentages of votes counted in each district is ranging between 20 and 25%. And, uh, and the, the uh, King County elections is predicting a 45% turnout. So we have about 20% more uh, the votes to be counted total votes, registered votes to be counted in each council race, a 19 percentage point lead, almost insurmountable. Let's just put it that way. So in District 2, we have an incumbent. Business-friendly Tanya Wu has a 9 percentage point lead over incumbent Tammy Morales. In And uh, so you, uh, and Tammy Morales is progressive-leaning. Um, progressive-leaning District 3 candidate Alex Hudson, who is losing, sounded like a candidate that is trailing by 19 percentage points. You know, half the ballots have been counted. So there is a long way to go before we know the results of this election. And she's losing to Joy Hollingsworth, who's endorsed endorsed by both progressive-leaning groups and business-friendly groups and sounded like a candidate who has a very comfortable lead. It's, it's a joyful moment right now. We know we have a strong lead, um, and we're looking forward to build on that. So let's move on to District 4. Business-friendly candidate Maritza Rivera is leading progressive-leaning candidate Ron Davis by 11 points. In District 5, we pretty much can call this race. Uh, Superior Court Judge Kathy Moore has essentially won her race over Christina Obi uh, Sumner. She has a 40 percentage point lead. So that I think that's pretty safe to call in yeah. District 5. Um, and, and then you have District 6. Uh, Pete Henning, who is the executive director of the Fremont Chamber of Commerce, now obviously he's business friendly, has a narrow two percentage point lead over District 6 incumbent Dan Strauss. The city has uh, not been happy with the current council. They've been really divisive. They've been performative. Now, when I talked to Dan Strauss last night, he says it's just way too early and that he's just trailing by 400 votes. Seattle is in a better place than our West Coast peers, L.A., San Francisco, Portland. But and things are better now than they've been in the last couple of years. But better is not good enough. So, uh, and finally in District 7, where we have the third incumbent, uh, Andrew Lewis, in District 7, business-friendly candidate Bob Kettle is beating the progressive-leaning incumbent Andrew Lewis by 12 percentage points, and uh, Kettle showed some confidence. Not just with the city council, but its relationships with other entities, whether it's on the public safety side with police, with the business community, but it's also you know in other areas, too, and I think we can do that. So, looking at those seven seats... 
all the business-friendly leaning candidates are winning, and the progressive-leaning candidates are not. Now you have Teresa Mosqueda, who is a current city council member, progressive-leaning. She's running. She was running, or still is running, for King County position number eight against Burien Maria, uh, Burien Mayor Sophia Aragon, and this has direct implications on the makeup of the council. Now Mosqueda is beating uh, Aragon by one percentage point, so it's very tight. Um, and then if Mosqueda wins that seat, that means that she moves on to the city, uh, King County Council and the brand new council, which could be made up of pro-business people next year, will appoint her replacement because Mosqueda has indicated she's going to stay on as a city council member to the end of this year. She can quit whenever she wants, but she's going to stay on to the end of the year because the beginning of the year she'll be uh, going to the King County Council. If she loses, she'll be one of the lone progressive voices, a very strong one on the city council. Um, um, the implications are that uh, Lewis doesn't look too good, Tem- Morales doesn't look too good. Dan Strauss may do pretty good. And keep in mind, Dave, this is how politics work in Seattle. We always have a late surge of progressive votes. Mm-hmm. Younger progressive voters vote late. We have the conservative, middle-of-the-road people who vote very early. All the votes that were counted last night were up to yesterday, be- beginning of yesterday, the votes that were counted. King County, and I don't have a Seattle number for this, but King County Elections has 43,000 votes outstanding at this moment. That doesn't count all the votes that are going to be coming into the office today day that people dropped off yesterday. So again, we have lots of votes to be counted, but right now, as it looks in the Seattle City Council, we could have a philosophical change. Yeah. So it does seem like we're, we could see some results change substantially, though, is what you're telling me. Yeah. Well, we, we could. Uh, you know, the, the all the losers, well, I mean, I shouldn't say losers, but the people who are losing like I said, the progressive-leaning right. candidates, we expect surges in all those races. Other than the, uh, the uh, District 5, which is pretty much over with a 40% yeah. lead with uh, Kathy Moore, um, all the progressive ones can surge. Now, can they, can like, uh, can uh, uh, Andrew Lewis make up 12 percentage points? We've seen Shama Swant famously in 2019, who was down nine or ten percentage points on it at this point in the election came back and won by six percentage but she made a 16 point well it's true i mean we old folks tend to vote early because we're worried that if we don't we'll forget where the ballot was (laughs) so i mean i voted like two weeks ago (laughs) so uh so we we know how you (laughs) now are you a conservative you know you know the one thing that i should say point out real quick dave is is something that bob kettle told me when i asked him if he was canvassing what are people telling him because he's pro you know pro business He he said that most people came up to him and says, you know, Bob, I'm a liberal, but. Yeah. And he heard that a lot. Uh, They just liberal people want to identify as progressive and liberal, but they're tired of seeing what's happening in Seattle. Yep. Matt Markovich. Thank you, Matt. You're welcome, Dave. Next ballot drop uh, this evening at five (laughs) o'clock. Daily Dose of Kindness brought to you by Robert W. Baird. A 14-year-old girl's act of kindness on a night of tricks and treats has gone viral. Gabby Parasotti was caught on somebody's fort, uh, front porch camera taking candy from her bag and putting it into an empty bowl. ABC affiliate WPLG found the girl after a video of her generosity was viewed by more than 11 million people. Well, there's a little girl behind me 
and we went up to the house and there was no candy and I felt bad, she was really cute. So I just decided to put some in and I never knew there was a camera or anything. I just walked around, my friends already left and I put the candy in and I just walked out. Parasodi is an eighth grader and has a lot to say about why kindness matters. This world, it's so harsh, let's just say, and there's not man, many like caring acts, I would say anymore. Um, so I guess it sort of triggered like a happy chain of something. Parasodi says she hopes her simple act helps restore people's faith in one another. There's still good people in this world and that more people should make decisions that would benefit others and not just themselves. And on a different note, I wanted to mention this story from Walmart. It's important for families who have children with uh, sensory issues. Here's CBS's Steve Kathan. Walmart is expanding its sensory-friendly hours for people with issues including autism, ADHD, and PTSD. This woman says it's good for her son. I think it's great because they're setting aside time for that for somebody. And I just think it's a beautiful thing. Starting Friday, this will be daily from 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. in all Walmart. Walmart stores around the country. Lights are lowered, the music's turned off, and TVs show a static image. Steve Kathan, CBS News. Isn't that nice? It is nice. And joining us now from the University of Washington School of Political Science, Democratic strategist Kathy Allen and Republican strategist Randy Peppel. And Randy, I'll go to you first. The consensus seems to be that uh, Democrats are winning big across the country, especially that vote in Ohio on the uh, abortion amendment. What do you think? Oh, I think that uh, that is certainly true. I mean, you can't argue with the fact that Ohio had voted against uh, uh, such abortion measures in the past. And this time when it actually uh, mattered because uh, the Roe versus Wade has been uh, overturned, the voters responded differently. And uh, the bigger losses were in, I think, uh, in Virginia, where uh, Governor Youngkin really said, give me a Republican legislature and I'll have a 15-week abortion ban. And the voters gave him a Democrat uh, legislature in both uh, both chambers. So, uh, and, and in Kentucky, the uh, Democrat governor won re-election. So in those areas, yeah, good night for the Democrats. But Unfortunately, I don't think it tells us anything for uh, what to look for in 24, because I don't know that I can say it was a good night for Joe Biden, because none of the candidates were running towards him. I, I know that. Yeah. So that's the question for you, Kathy, as a Democratic strategist. Is this just a, an endorsement of the Democratic brand or does it actually help uh, the Joe Biden age issue? Actually, I got to tell you, in your dreams, Randy, in your dreams, <laughs> last night was a solidly nice night. I slept very soundly last night thinking, well, it's about time. It's about time I had a good night. And then from all of that, what I can say is Joe Biden's age is a Republican issue. You know, everybody gets older, even you, Randy. And in this part, what I know is that last night enough change happened that was not necessarily D or R. It was really change that said, I'm fed up with homelessness. I'm fed up with not being able to find a home for my kids. And I'm fed up with all of this kind of public safety problem and no cops around. 
So I think it was a more practical, personal night where people were looking at their own lives and looking for a better quality. I don't think that Joe's age mattered at all. I just want to point out that the sniping between these two is performative because the last time I talked to them, they arrived in the same car and left in the same car. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we still do. We're both right now, and if we're barely out of bed, and we're both at the same location. <laughs> right. Okay, so let's talk about let's talk about the uh, the local elections. It does seem like there's been a, a turn towards law and order on the Seattle City Council, Kathy. What about that? It is, and to his credit, Randy Peppel, I'll give him credit for this. He is actually jumping on this for two years now, and frankly, it's well past the time that we realize that we're not safe. And from that perspective, that was the number one issue that I think was in people's heads last night when they were looking at the results. They said, you know what, there are a lot of people who think like me, and that is we need to put more effort into this being safe. Yeah. So, Randy, why do more Republicans run on that instead of, you know, hitching their wagon to Donald Trump? Well, I I think in Washington state, you certainly see Republicans talking about uh, public safety. I mean, look at who the leading candidate for governor is uh, for next year, Dave. It's Dave Reichert. Oh, I recognize uh, who, the name. You know, as I recall. <laughs> um, so, uh, but I mean, so public safety is a major issue for Republicans. The thing is, abortion is the major issue for Democrats. And beyond abortion and Donald Trump, they don't have much else to talk about. And so, you know, Republicans will try to avoid those two subjects in this state as much as possible because it's not to our electoral benefit. But in the city of Seattle, you know, Republicans are one out of eight votes. <laughs> you know, so we we don't get to determine a lot of elections. It was the independents and the Democrats that looked around and said that our city streets are unsafe. I mean, we're having bonfires next to I-90 every yeah. night. OK, uh, that is very visible and very much in people's faces. And the response from the, the incumbent city council members was, so what, you know? Let, let let them be. And uh, I think the voters turned away from that, but they didn't turn to Republican solutions uh, to that. I mean, this is not a uh, this was not a lock them up and throw away the key election. But it is a hey, we need to do something to, to clean yeah. up our streets. And I think that's what you're going to see now going forward. Yeah. Randy, Peppel, go ahead, Kathy. I just wanted to say, you know, do you know how many people at your newscast this morning when you were talking about the seven cars that have been found, eight cars that have been found? Do you know how many people said, I wonder if I should drive out there and see if it's mine? You know, yeah. the fact is, is that it's very much now public safety is a personal issue because so many of us have been touched by it. Yeah, absolutely. Kathy Allen and Randy Peppel, thank you both. Thank, thank you. you. And that's Mickey time. Mickey Gomez is here, and it looks like we're going to get a strike at uh, Providence. Yes, and on Tuesday. What, what kind of, this is a limited strike? Five days. Five days. Six mm -hmm. days. Is it? Oh, okay, through the My 19th. My math is off. That's right. It's through the 19th. <laughs> Apologies. All right. So what are the issues and why are they so hard to solve? So Providence labor and delivery nurse Kristen Crowder spoke to us last week, says the nurses shortage is dangerously low. She says it's 60 to 85 percent. And on short days, it's 50 percent. So we're talking like for every six patients, one nurse in some areas where they have like med surge and or let's say ICU. Um, so the bargaining uh, reportedly went very well when it comes to income. However, when it came to staffing, that's where they hit a wall and nurses said, OK, that's it. We're going to strike. Why? 
Have you gotten any reason from Providence why they won't budge on the staffing issue? Because if true, 600 nurses quitting in the last 18 months, how do you... I just think about you know, people quitting in this newsroom and it would become right. increasingly difficult. And we're not trying to save lives here. We're just given information. How do they not see that as a sign staffing is at a low? Providence Hospital does see that as an issue and they are trying to work on it. However, they didn't say exactly or explain to us what it is they want to do. They just recognize that there is a shortage and they tell us that it's not just an an Everett problem. It's not just a Providence Everett problem. It is a nationwide problem. And so fixing the problem isn't going to be like at the snap of the finger. So you there's know? a nursing employee shortage too, which is why they can't fill the roles. I've heard that as well. That's right. However, when you ask the nurses, the nurses are going to tell you, wait a minute, but other hospitals don't have the shortage that we have. Mm, okay. I see. So this is, in other words, this is not just the same from hospital to hospital. Other hospitals have adequate staffing. So what are they doing differently than Providence? So competitive pay is what we're being told. These hospitals are, are offering uh, more, uh, you know, better compensation packages. Uh, probably the uh, working or staffing ratio is probably at 90 percent. But something that was really interesting that Crowder told us yesterday, uh, again, labor and delivery nurse, is that, you know, she understands and the union does understand that these hospitals all recruit from the same pool, right? All of these nursing students. But when they bring nursing students over to Providence and these nursing students see the work environment, the workload, the pay, when it comes time to getting an offer for a job, they're saying, peace out. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, not going to do it. I'll go be a traveling Well, is Providence instead. in financial trouble then? I mean, there must be Providence some reason. Providence doesn't they... say that they are in any kind of financial issue whatsoever. Mm. Now, when they were bargaining at the table last week, they did come up with a plan. And they did say, the nurses did say, hey, listen, um, the compensation package is no longer the issue. The issue here is the staffing issue. But th- they go together. I mean, is it are the nurses... Not joining Providence because of some issue besides compensation? They're saying that they they met the compensation package. That's fine now. Right. And they're happy with that. Right. But they want Providence to, to be very more. transparent when it comes to how they're going to fix the shortage. They tell us that the uh, on average, the staffing shortage is 60 to 80 percent daily. But on days where people call out, it's 50 percent. And that's difficult. They say it's dangerously low and it's not safe for patient care. Providence says we are aware, Mm -hmm. but they haven't been forthcoming with information on how they plan on fixing that staffing issue. Well, I imagine they would want to hire more nurses if they could afford to. Why? I mean, why wouldn't you do that? That's the plan. The plan is to hire more nurses. But when, how, where are they going to find these nurses from? Mm. Well, yeah, what, how is, you know, you've got UW, you've got Virginia Mason, you've got all the well, other how do, clinics. How do they control that? If, they, if not enough nurses are being graduated, what are you supposed to do? Right. That's that's the overall question when you don't have enough nurses and it is nationwide. I mean, the nursing industry saw this shortage coming, but they believed that the nursing shortage would hit in 2030. Mm-hmm. The pandemic mm-hmm. expedited that. Burned and everyone now, out. Yeah. So not only do we have a shortage of nursing students, we also have a shortage of nursing teachers. We all, And then we have all well, of these, what, you know. What this tells me is that the strike, how does the strike address that? All the strike does is make, you know, things more miserable for those, what, six days. 
and then the the systemic shortages. Providence has no control over that, right? I, yeah, I, but they yeah. they can put forth a plan if you know. Yeah, they well, can't they, control the shortage, they, but they can say, okay, okay here's we what we're going to do nurses, to recruit. Except we're going to hire nurses from from places that don't graduate, aren't graduating enough nurses. I don't, know, I don't know how they do anything about that. I, I don't know how they're supposed to do anything about that as well. I went to both of them and I, I yeah. said, okay, nursing nurses union, how do they fix the problem? And I went, Providence, how do you fix the problem? And neither were able to give us an answer on how the problem could be how the problem can be fixed. They did say, though, that the wages are more competitive now. And we did ask. I I asked, I said, listen, um, you know, can a deal be made before you guys go on strike on the 14th? And Crowder said, well, technically a deal can be made before the official strike. But Providence has said that it's not going to bargain right now. They're going to let the nurses strike. And then uh, the nurses do have to go back to work on the 20th. And then hopefully there will be some kind of bargaining. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Mickey. You're welcome. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. You can hear us live every morning on 97.3 FM or subscribe to this podcast and you'll never miss the show.